Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. All right, welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guests, we have three guests, J.D. Sanderson, Stan Cho, and Matt Kelly. J.D. is a science fiction author whose first novel, A Footstep Echo, is on sale now. The sequel, The Clock's Knell, is coming out in summer 2019. Stan is a writer and artist of both traditional and mobile comic books and published his first comic on Webtoon earlier this year. And Matt Kelly is a senior copywriter and writer of comic books, including Highlander and an upcoming comic with Stan Cho, who's also on the episode, with Matt being the writer and Stan being the artist. Thank you guys for bearing with me on those bios. Uh, <laughs> welcome. Let's just kick it off on how you guys are feeling right now. JD, you want to go first? I'm feeling great. It is, uh, we just, I'm in central South Dakota right now, and we just got, we're still digging ourselves out from the, uh, the bomb cyclone, but I can finally get my car to the parking lot now, so I'm doing good. All right. Stan? Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel great. I'm working at a new comic book company. Yeah, and I got a lot of things in the works. And, um, you know, things, I'm, I'm happy with the way things are going. I'm, uh, as far as the weather, I'm very cold in, in, North, in New York, and I can't wait for spring. <laughs> what borough are you in, Stan? Uh, I'm in Queens. You're in Queens. All right. Matt? Well, I'm out here on beautiful Long Island, New York. The sun is shining. The, the kids are upstairs watching the Lego movie. And, uh, yeah, no, I'm excited. I've got a, a new short that's coming out in a uh, sci-fi uh, comic book anthology. Uh, sci-fi's uh, the 2019 volume from Publisher Story Arc. So excited about that. And uh, yeah, just all sorts of good stuff is happening. So Awesome. Well, thank you guys. I know this episode is going to be a little bit different than our normal format. We usually talk to one writer. On this one, obviously, we're going to be going back and forth. So we usually frame our episodes around specific themes. For this episode, we were thinking, since you guys are all different writers of different mediums, we would love to talk about process, compare that process. So if you guys are down to school us on that, we'd love to kind of just walk through the process and hear about all of your different perspectives. Are you guys ready to rock and roll? I am. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Love it. I like the in unison one, two, three situation. All right. So let's start at the beginning of an idea. When we start working on a new project, it always starts with coming up with an idea somehow. Inception. Where do these ideas come from? How do you get them? Which one do you choose? How do you know? Let's start with JD. Well, uh, for my book, uh, which I published last year, June of last year, A Footstep Echo, I had actually, I was the stereotypical failed novelist who would start a project, abandon it around page 60, start another one, abandon it around page 60. And that happened for, you know, longer than I'd like to admit. <laughs> when I finally started this book, I had started to get inspired just, you know, watching a bunch of Netflix streaming shows and I'm seeing all, all this new long form storytelling. And I was like, you know, I really like this stuff. This is kind of the sci-fi I always wanted to see and now it's popular. And I, I liked the fact that so much stuff was coming out that was not really copying off of anything else. So I sat down one day and I was like, you know, I'm going to give this another shot. And I literally sat there at my keyboard and said, what haven't I seen before? And I tried to just, because I think the reason I always failed before, I would get into a project and then just throw it away because I'm like, oh, this is too Star Trekky. This is too Dr. Huey. This is too much like David Weber's Bolo series. You know, I, I, I feel like I'm copying someone else. 
you know, I just felt unoriginal. So I decided to take two characters that I had never really worked with before. I'm like, I'm going to make my main character really old and really crotchety. And usually characters like that and that I've always read are kind of like side characters or, you know, the elderly grandfather type character. I'm like, nope, this is going to be my main guy. He's going to go on a lot of time travel adventures. And I'm going to make the other main character a girl who can't talk and has no memory. I'll have fun writing that. Then I just decided to just, um, I had three or four things in the back of my mind that I wanted to do. And I literally won the plot. Because I think one of my problems, I, I have so much respect for people who sit there and plan out stuff. Because I realized that I just can't think that way. So when I see people, whether it's writing a comic book or writing a short story or writing a novel, these people are very impressive when they do that. So major kudos. All right. Stan, you want to go next? Yeah. So as far as, you know, the, the early, the early, early, you know, where, where it all starts from, uh, for me, because um, first and foremost, I'm an artist. So it starts from, you know, watching and ingesting a lot of um, sort of, you know, comics, TV, movies, etc. And from that, I get a feeling of, you know, what if I make a comic about such and such? And my next step, and I don't, you know, I'm not writing anything yet. It's all in my head. The next step is to try to sketch it out. And now that I've sketched it out, um, I have to ask myself, is this easy, easy to reproduce over the course of a long story? It's something that's more and more important to, I think, to everybody who's trying to create stuff because we all, you know, have our jobs. We all have a very limited amount of time to work on these side projects. So that's a very important question to ask early on is, you know, is this something that um, I can re reproduce over and over again in a limited amount of time, uh, spare time? Um, and then from there, I go, I go straight to storyboards with scripting on top of the storyboards. So it's very stream of thought, kind of like JD was talking about. I don't do a lot of planning. I know where, you know, that my characters, I want to bring my characters, locations and props from A to B, a sort of rough overall vision of that. But I don't get bogged down in the plotting of it all. I get, I'm more interested in creating a very realistic location and very clear characters so that when I place the character into the location, they sort of, you know, have a life of their own. And I just kind of sit back and watch as they walk around, do things, make decisions, go from A to B. And the world sort of kind of is revealed as they walk, kind of like, you know, Diablo or, you know, any of these sort of MMORPG games where it's like, it's all black until you walk there and then something appears, right? right? So it's kind of like, it's kind of like that. That's kind of like how I write and draw my, my stories. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I always uh, draw on like an emotional touchstone for me when I come when I think about, you know, what I want to write about. Like my uh, anthology short that I have coming out was very much inspired by growing up with a sibling that has autism. And, you know, that was a very like, you know, emotional uh, experience to go through. So when I was like mulling over that one day, I was wondering how can I translate you know, those types of feelings into, you know, a story. And then, you know, kind of like trying to think of an image to hang it on and um and uh, something connect same thing with the thing that stan and i are working on i it's a kidnapping uh thriller and as a kid i don't know if anyone remembers those um those faces on the back of the milk carton this oh, yeah. was more of a thing in like the 80s or early 90s but they don't do it anymore 
but you know, missing kids, they'd have their pictures back there. And like that always haunted me. And so, you know, I always would try to imagine, you know, is there a happy timeline? You know, what's, you know, is there another world where they, where they're not gone? And so like, that was an emotional thing for me. So I go back and I just kind of mine my, uh, the, the craggy rocks that are my, uh, my past and try and see if there's any, you know, kind of emotional touchstone for me. And then I grab that and try and craft, um, a story around it. Now, whether it's going to be a comic or a novel or a short story, I just kind of wait for the lightning to hit and tell me which direction to go with it. So then I'll just start, you know, jotting down some notes and do some brainstorming stuff. And then usually try to find someone else to bounce the ideas off of. And in the case with the story I'm working on with Stan, Stan and I have been crafting this for a while now. So Amazing. Let's get into the the nuts and bolts, so to speak. Uh, when you work on an outline, JD, I know you said you didn't prefer like planning out, planning out, but I'm assuming you have some level of outline, correct? Correct. Yeah. My first uh, book, it's a uh, I did it in three parts. Each part, one, two, and three, is kind of like its own standalone mini novella type thing. And I just, I guess, I kind of plan it off and like I know how I want them each to end. So really, I'm just like, okay, as long as I end up here, I'm going to be fine. I also have know a couple other things too. I know I want to kind of deal with, you know, like, I want to deal with some certain situations that I'm dealing with in real life. When I started writing the book, the big discussion was from me and my wife: Do I want to stay in upstate New York, where we were from, or do we want to take a chance and move someplace else for a better day gig? And so, the, a lot of the book is really was thematic on you know finding yourself in the right situation or going back and fixing things you should have done a long time ago. Like the new book I'm working on now is mostly me dealing with becoming a father and having elderly parents and stuff like that. So there's little bits of that in there. So I try and work stuff in along the way. I also knew there were certain things I wanted to touch on, like I wanted to have, I wanted to make sure that I kept the stakes low. And what I mean by that is, you know, the world is not ending. I wanted it to be a more personal story. Um, just, you know, antagonist, protagonist bouncing off of each other and kind of like a mental chess type thing. I wanted to make sure that I killed off a couple people to keep the stakes high, I guess, in another way. <laughs> So, and I, and I also, at the bottom, I don't plan out a huge outline, but at the bottom of every, of wherever I leave off, I make like three or four little notes on the, on my, uh, my little word pad that I'm just like, okay, this is what I'm going to do next. Hopefully. Great. How about you, Stan? What's your, uh, outline process? Do you write arcs? What's your, uh, plan of attack? I think it, it's different for every story. In the past, I've written, uh, plot outlines for 50 issues. I've written full 100-page scripts before, I would say for my sort of target uh, output now, which is mostly for mobile comics, uh, for a platform such as Webtoon, which I think is the future of comics because it's all about cell phones. It's all about everybody doing everything on their cell phones these days. But that's a whole other conversation. So as far as my outline for mobile comics, writing and drawing for mobile comics, I think it's actually in my mind, a little bit similar to uh, novels as opposed to comic books, because in novels, you can have um, chapters that are different lengths, whereas comics, it's more, okay, issue one, issue two. They all kind of are the same length, 20 pages or so. So with that sort of freedom to create short and long chapters, I just, I just um, look for I don't actually outline in, in the sense of, okay, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. I can still use sort of my stream of consciousness to kind of make the outline, but not break it up into pieces yet. I feel like 
um, this allows me to have natural breaks or just to kind of write and draw until I find natural breaks. And the outline kind of forms as I go. Maybe that's not so much of an outline, but, but okay. So that, that aside, there are sort of outline moments that I, that I want to plan out, particularly cliffhangers. If there are particularly cliffhanger, uh, cliffhanger moments, then I would kind of try to build that into an outline or, or general, have a, have a better, have a good understanding of when that cliffhanger will happen. And also, um, it's all about the character, obviously. You have to love the character to have any kind of audience. I mean, you have to have a lovable character to have any kind of audience. So it's important to map out when these characters will have their emotional spikes. So um, whether that's being extremely happy or being extremely angry or just what are those peaks and troughs of, of those character moments that are going to delight the, the reader. Um, I kind of have to know. And I have to have a good amount of those. Otherwise, it's just a boring story. And I have to kind of try to map that out into an outline. And Matt, how about you? Is your process similar to either JD or Stan's, or do you have your own? You know, I, uh, I definitely try. And like I said before, I'll, I'll do some brainstorming exercises. I've read the Joseph Campbell stuff, the, you know, Hero a Thousand Faces and all the... Um, books that go along with it so many times that it's hard to um, to not think about that when I'm writing an outline. I definitely outline for everything, but I do try and break away from that when I can, if I feel like the story is going to go someplace unexpected. But one thing I do do, I don't know how many comic book writers do this, but I do, you know, map out, I do draw like little storyboards for myself as I'm writing, just so I can kind of get the page turns right, which is, you know, an old comic book uh, storytelling trick. So I kind of like script off of these you know, hastily drawn storyboards. So that's my form of outlining when it comes to comic book writing. Great. I could chime in. Yeah, too. sure. I should add that um, Matt is an artist, though he doesn't no. say he is. <laughs> but I think, I think he's, he's a writer artist, I think. You know? And I think he has that artistic mindset that really helps him to, uh, to build his the vision of a story. Oh, thanks, Stan. I do, I do. I guess I should say I do color as well. I've colored on a number of projects in the past, and I uh, letter uh, frequently as well. So I, you know, try and be you know multi hyphenate as much as I can. I'm also a cheap guy, so I like to do stuff on my own if I can. But yeah, well, I think I think everyone that writes comics has some sort of eye for uh, art because that's what draws you to the medium in the first place. Is is those pictures, you know, it's not the words, it's the pictures that kind of excite you and, uh, you know, and get you going. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said for sort of confidence in, you know, you know, label, if you call yourself a writer, you know, having confidence to tell people that you are an artist, I think that's really important. And for people who don't feel like they are artists, is to not downplay the importance of stick figures because it always seems mm. like, oh, I can only draw stick figures. It's, it's like, well, you know, you, you could technically watch the most cinematic movie, you know, ever made and recreate that in stick figures and it'll still be awesome. So it's like, don't downplay, you know, stick figures because that's still a really useful tool for yourself and for the artist that you're going to be working with and for communicating to investors and all up and down the, the supply chain. Uh, so it's, um, it's important for, I think, that sort of 
mental like where do you stand mentally as a writer you know to yeah to really take advantage of, of anything visual jd you know we were just talking about comic books and the fact that when writing you have to take into consideration the panels and what things look like is there an equivalent in writing a novel are you thinking about oh this is what it's going to look like in its final form in a printed book is there an equivalent well there probably is for a lot of writers uh, for me personally I mean, I guess I know how certain parts are going to end. The ending of my first book and my second book now, which I've just finished the, the, a draft, surprised me. You know, I did not know I was going to keep this person alive or kill this one off or have the ending be this way or that way. I do do a little bit of, uh, of, of mental arithmetic, you know, as I'm planning stuff out. I want to make sure that I keep the story visual. You know, I'm not, I'm not an artist. I can do a stick figure, but that's about it. So, but I, I want to make sure that I, I capture the reader's imagination with the, the imagery I'm telling. One of my earliest influences in storytelling was actually a, a relative gave me a collection of old-time radio plays from like the 50s and 60s. And you're, you're listening to these little short stories that are about 20 to 30 minutes long, you know, told in the traditional three-act structure. But they keep you visually invested. And you can feel like every 10 minutes, oh, we're going to hit a wall and go to the next part. So I guess that's about how I want to do it for every chapter, too. I try and build up a little bit, crest a little bit, but keep the story going at the same pace. And hearing those growing up really stimulated my imagination. You know, it was, um, you know, because there's no, there's no visual medium to, to, to assist you. So I had, you have to make it completely something that you can create in your imagination. So I don't describe things in a ton of detail. There's certain characters I don't really describe at all. I leave it up to the reader to see how it goes. But as far as a story structure, I guess I approach it sort of the same way. Can you tell us about the process of actually sitting down and writing that first draft? Obviously, for a novel, that's a lot of pages. Walk us through the point of, of getting there. All right, so when I, when I sat down with this new novel, The Clock's Now, uh, I already had the world established in the first book. You know, it hops between present time and about 200 years in the future. I did a ton of research, you know, going, reading, listening to free college lectures reading uh, books on like the future of physics, going to websites like futurism.com and looking at anything on YouTube I can that was from a, a credible source. So I took notes on, on this, how I think the science is reasonably going to turn out. You know, I'm not, I'm not a physicist. I didn't go to school for that. So I want to make, I did not, I had to do a lot of catch up work so I can make it sound somewhat plausible. You know, green technology, gravitational theory, all that stuff I spent. The entire time I was writing, I was reading stuff like this as I needed to. So when I start off, I'm like, okay, I want to make sure, you know, going by what was said earlier, I wanted to have characters that were likable. Yeah, my, my main guy is a craggy old man, but I wanted him to be, you know, I wanted him to have a past that people could relate to. And I took it from modern times. I'm like, okay, we're going to structure it around this guy right here. He's 70 years old. He's a widower. His dog ran away. His newspaper that he worked at closed down because of the internet. He has to work. His pension got chewed up. He has to work a terrible job just shelving books at the library to make ends meet. So I took that, and I, I, at the end of every chapter, I had my little notes down. I'm like, okay, I love this. And you know, there was occasional times when I would go back and just delete an entire chapter. I'm like, nope, this doesn't work. Redo, which is why the first book took me a year to write. Stan, tell us about, you know, we talked about the outline process. Tell us about sitting down and actually, you know, writing the actual script. So for my first webtoon, you know, I have two kids, so... Basically, I had, you know, I have to send them places and um, <laughs> I end up with some idle time. 
So I really wanted to maximize that time. So what I would do is I would bring uh, basically a three by three grid of a, a paper, a piece of paper with a three by three blank grid on it, basically nine storyboards and um, bring that to a coffee shop while I was waiting for, you know, I drop my kids off, you know, spend two hours um, drawing storyboards and scripting in the margins of those storyboards. And just every time I would draw, you know, three to nine storyboards, I would just sit back and kind of read it and reread it, you know, see how much I could squeeze out of this idea that I had, you know, and these are very quick um, sketches. You know, I can, I can scrap any of it at any time. I can rearrange them at any time. You know, all, you know, all the one thing that's really nice about working in this way is that, you know, with comic books, sometimes you're locked into how you've designed a comic book page because all the panels are different sizes. But when you're working in a storyboard format, you don't have that problem. So I basically would work, work, work until I reached one of those natural breaks or a cliffhanger and then, um, and actually keep going, you know, in my next sort of, um, in my next session, so to speak, to the point where I would have the whole thing storyboarded out and sketched, but I haven't finalized any of the pages. Um, that way I could kind of have an overarching view of the entire story. I could read it from beginning to end. So this takes a bit of time, but once I start finalizing the art, then, oh, I guess that's not a first draft anymore, right? So we'll cover the revision phase next. Matt, how about you? Yeah, well, you know, I think that when I have everything outlined, I, I do pretty, pretty extensive outlining with the, you know, the stick figures that Sam was talking about. I kind of, I get that out there pretty well so that when it comes to a comic book script, which, you know, in some cases it's eight pages in some other cases, it's, you know, maybe as much as four as 40, but you know, more and more the norm, it becomes comic book scripts are only like 20 pages. I'm able to knock it out pretty quickly because of all the outlining that I've done. So I try as much as I can to get it done within, you know, like one sitting, you know, a couple hours if I ha can, you know, carve out the time here or there. And, and like Stan, I have two small boys. So, so that time is precious. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, I just kind of, I, I knock it out and I just let it, I let it be terrible. I give myself that permission to make that first draft uh, god awful so that um, I get it done because completing it, getting that first thing done is the hardest part, but also the most important part. Because if you just hem and haw and like, oh, wait, no, I got to move that comma. No, oh, that comma can't be there. Oh, no, no, wait, nope, nope, should have been a semicolon. Wait, hold on. If you like kill yourself worrying about all that the first time around, you're never going to get it done. So, um, yeah, so they use kind of they call it the vomit draft, and it's called that for a reason. So you just get all out there, and then then you're good to go. On to the next phase. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. 
And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickr and Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. Now, a lot of people are so happy to get to that first draft that they're like, you know what? This thing is ready to rock. But it's, as we've heard on the show many, many, many times, you've got to keep writing and writing and writing. Uh, JD, tell us about the process of taking that first draft and getting it to a final kind of place. So after my first draft was done in my first book, I set it aside for a couple weeks. I was like, okay, take a breath, come back to it later with fresh eyes. Once I picked it up again, I reread it, figured out some stuff I didn't like, and then I gave it to my, uh, I gave it to my wife to read because she's a huge sci-fi fan. She's also a very good uh, writer and editor. So I, once, she, once she had gone through it, she pointed out a bunch of continuity errors, which I had made. And when, in a time travel story, you're going to have them. Wait, I thought they were supposed to be here, and they're not. No, no, they're, they're actually back in this time period. They're supposed to be over here. I'm like, oh, thank you. I, I made a lot of notes as I went along. Uh, I suppose that fixing the continuity of my draft was the first thing I did. Also, I want to get a shirt that says hashtag word vomit, vomit draft. That's awesome. Um, I used to work for a t-shirt company, so I'm always thinking in terms of like what makes a cool t-shirt. After the first draft was done, and then the second draft was done, I went through a final editing phase, sent it off to a couple small publishers, and I got it back with a couple very helpful tips. You know, everyone was very polite. I got reject. I got the, the typical rejections first time around. So I went back and did another revision, added in some parts that were a little bit more peppy. And then after that, um, it was and that that was when it was finally ready for prime time. It took like f- six months after it was actually finished for it to be really finished. Stan, what about you? What's your process for getting uh, a comic to its uh, final, um, you know? Yeah, so I start uh, inking my storyboards. And as I'm going through, I'm I'm kind of revisiting it with fresh eyes or or slightly more fresh eyes and uh, i'm not afraid to throw away scenes and recreate things i just grab another quick nine grid three by three grid and i just quickly storyboard out a scene if i feel like there might be another way to tell it better or you know in in webtoon format when drawing for webtoon you know it's this infinite scroll right you're infinitely scrolling upward and there are opportunities for animation and, you know, there, there are scenes that I like the way they are, but I want to add a few more frames or I want to change a few frames. So it's kind of like I'm adding sort of a, a visual element to the storytelling um, or, or trying to refine the visual element of the storytelling or pacing wise in terms of the script, because, you know, you might want to beat in between, you know, when that person talks and this person talks. So it's kind of like, you get to watch it. It's kind of like you're, you're a video editor, you know, because it's like a movie. It's an infinite scroll movie. Um, so there are all those little things that I just kind of adjust along the way. But I'm not too attached and I'm not being too uh, precious about the story because, um, you know, what Webtoons, you know, you can set your own schedule, but I was updating once a week, which is, which is a, a lot faster turnaround than, uh, you know, standard comic books. So what I usually do is I'll get, let's just say, you know, five or six episodes finished and, and upload the first episode and continue working on episode seven, eight, nine. So I do have a little bit of a buffer, but it's important to keep a steady pace. So 
Um, if I'm up against the crunch line, I'm not going to be too precious about making it perfect. There's one thing I learned about recently. I've been studying a lot about design, um, design, just design in, in a very sort of general, broad sense of design. And when you're designing something, no matter what it is, there's this graphic that I'm looking at. It's called the four planets. It's planet discovery, planet hypothesis, planet deliver, and planet listen. And the important thing about releasing the things that you create is you've got to get to the fourth planet, which is planet listen. Because when you get there, you, you get a better sense of what's working through the eyes of your audience. And without that nugget of knowledge, you can, you're, it's just a vanity project. You're just doing what you think is cool. You're not really doing what works in your story uh, for your audience. And you cannot get it. You can't get that information unless you deliver, unless you go through Planet Deliver. So it's really important. I think a lot of people get stuck on Planet Deliver. They never get to know what's actually working in their product. Um, so, so I launch it on Webtoon. I see immediately, because in Webtoon, people can comment right away. One of, one of the difficult things about traditional comics is, you know, you put your email address, you put your Twitter you put everything at the back of the comment, like nobody's going to contact you. Um, so the good thing about Webtoon is you get immediate feedback. You know, granted, you, you, know, you have to give it time, but you're going to get some feedback. Um, and then you roll from there. You can design your quote unquote volume two or your second long story arc around what the fans really like. How about you, Matt? You know, I think uh, for me, after I hand off my script to an artist and the artist, uh, illustrates it and they do their thing. As I was saying before, also, you know, being a, a writer and, or, I'm sorry, a letterer and a colorist, um, it doesn't end for me. So usually I end up coloring um, the story that I'm working on. So it allows me for another chance to add my own little um, filter on the story and I get to, you know, choose some of the color palettes. I always collaborate very closely with the artist on that, but I get to, you know, participate in that way. And then chances are, like, I do, like, another draft of writing when it comes to the lettering, because by that time, you know, usually the illustration takes a little while. So by that time, I've had a chance to, you know, sit more with the dialogue and tweak it and, and kind of make it the best version it can be through the lettering process. So if I could give any comic book writers advice out there about comic book writing and the production of it all... Um, don't be silly like me and get involved with the coloring because that'll just slow you down. <laughs> you know, I, my joke is always like, I feel like my comics career is a bit of a glacial pace. Like glaciers make a lot of, uh, uh, you know, make big dents and uh, they, they form the landscape. And I'm happy to say that I do that, but, it does, but I do move a little bit slower because I color my own stuff. But definitely learn lettering if you can, because being able to, um, to letter your own stuff and do it the right way because there's a lot of terrible lettering out there. But um, doing it allows you to have one more pass at it, one more chance to say, hey, you know what? I can tweak it now. And that's when you can start, you know, moving those commas and semicolons around. So you guys talked about getting your works to their final kind of uh, place. How do you work through the idea of self-publishing as opposed to finding a publisher? Stan, I know you mentioned Webtoon. I know there's Comixology. We'd love to get your thoughts on where your head's at when the story's finished, when you're ready to get it published. You know, are you trying to find an agent? Like, where's your head at? And uh, 
how do you make that decision? So JD, why don't you go first? Yeah, I I, um, I wrestled with the idea of self-publishing versus uh, going with uh, maybe a smaller publishing house, an indie publishing house, maybe, which is what I eventually signed with for my first book. I was ready to self-publish. I have made some friends in the, the writing community online that are self-published authors, and they're very, they have great works of fiction out there. But I was just like, you know what? I'll just give it a shot. One thing I also forgot to mention, too, in the last segment is I, I did give my book to a couple beta readers, which is always a helpful thing if you're writing any kind of story, I think. I gave them to somebody who likes traditional mysteries, somebody who likes just dramas, somebody who likes, you know, kind of like thrillers, none of which I really write in, but I thought it was helpful to get kind of a general audience perspective. But anyways, after that was done, and I had gone through another revision, I was able to send it off to a couple indie publishers, got rejected by all of them. I took the advice they gave me, did a final revision, sent it off, and then I got one. I was like, oh, okay, I got a bite. Cool. Why not? For the, um, the second book, though, however, I believe I am going to self-publish. There's a few things that I think that would be kind of advantageous, you know, continuing to build the story, not really editing things, but more just, just, you know, more superficial things that I just want to have control over and to see how it goes. So that's where I'm at right now. What about you, Stan? I know you mentioned, would you actually be able to describe to us the difference between like a webtoon and a comicsology and like what the pros and cons are for those aspiring comic book writers who are trying to get their work out there? I haven't published on Comixology Submit, but I can describe the webtoon. Sure, sure. Yeah, so webtoon is, is anybody can publish on webtoon. Um, you can publish on your own schedule. Um, you, you know, you have access to their vast audience of readers who are, their main demographic is aged uh, 12 to 24. And more than half of the last statistic I saw is that it's 65% female readership. Don't quote me on that. But um, so yeah, you get a feeling of, you know, what, what might be popular for that demographic. And it's, it's a very, I'd say it's a very smooth experience. You know, you, you get access, you, you get feedback on your comic book. In terms of, of respect, I think you do get a level of respect for being kind of uh, on the forefront of where comics are headed. Um, and I would say even now, a lot of schools are looking for people who have Webtoon experience to be able to teach it to their, to their students. So, you know, having, being able to speak about Webtoon is something that is, um, is something that's, I think people are realizing the value in that. So that's another thing to keep in mind is that you're not repeating something that's been done really well over the past 50 years or, or more, you're kind of in the trenches of paving new ground, uncharted water, so to speak. So maybe that's probably the best that I can do off the cuff about, about Webtoon. Regarding self-publishing versus trying to find a publisher or Kickstarter, I think it's, to me, you know, if you're someone like me who doesn't have a name that's established with one of the big two or even one of the big six, it's really a matter of really understanding your audience, the audience that you've created through your social media accounts or through networking at Comic Cons. One of the best ways to get a bead on what you're really worth, quote unquote, is just to do a Kickstarter and just see how much um, funding you can get, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, or just you can even, you know, make your website and put a PayPal donate button. You could do a Patreon, do whatever you need to do, do all of them even. And just see where you stand in terms of how many customers you can get 
that can only help you when you try to find a publisher and you know maybe they put you through diamond and maybe you get 50 orders or whatever 50 to 100 orders or whatever nothing's going to move the needle i'm i'm being very honest it's it's just nothing's really going to move the needle unless you have that established fan base and you either build it yourself or you build it through one of the big 6 or whatever the, the big 5 or whatever it is they're calling it these days you know all that said regardless of if i was popular or not i would still really I still really prefer the self-publishing route because unless you really know the publisher you're signing with, you don't know what you're going to get. Like I have one horror story uh, that I heard from a friend was that they were tweeting out about the graphic novel that my friend had worked on with a link to a comic review. And the comic review was a negative review of the graphic novel. I mean, that is just unacceptable. And that just made me never look at that comic publisher the same ever again so it's just you have to really know the publisher or if the contacts at the publisher that you're going to get regardless of what they do with the book that you created those contacts will help you connect with other people like for example from my understanding aspen has a good relationship with dc comics so if you become an artist for aspen you know you're going to be seen by the dc people and you have a chance to work for dc so that kind of thing is just understanding the landscape of the publishers. All big publishers look to some, some small publishers to some extent to look for their next wave of talent. So just understand the landscape, you know, make the right connections, network the right way, you know, put your best foot forward and make the best decisions that can help you in the long run. And Matt? Yeah, uh, wow. I mean, Stan, uh, from a comics perspective, I just completely agree with everything he just said. It's all about building your audience. What's the best? way you're going to build your audience. Only you can answer that. It's different for everybody. Maybe you have a strong uh, family and friend network that can make your first Kickstarter a success, then do that. But if you don't, then you definitely need to find a small publisher. But yeah, watch out. There are small publishers that will that will uh, gladly take advantage of you and in, in any and every way. So, um, so you just got to be savvy. You got to be smart. But that only comes from networking that only comes from uh, going to cons and learning uh, the ins and outs industry and what your local scene is like. Everybody has a local place. You know, I feel so blessed. You know, I live here in New York, the New York area. It's a great comic community here, very supportive. It's awesome. But maybe some other people, you know, they don't live in a place where it's as uh, vibrant or or as supportive. So you just got to get out there. and uh, But get involved with uh, with artist groups and writers groups as well online. Um, part of the story that Stan and I are working on together, I, I workshopped it at comicsexperience.com, a great website for, uh, for people. I and mean, it does, there's a fee to get inside the, um, the writer's workshop, but it's well worth it if you don't mind uh, paying it for a little while um, to uh, you know, interact with other people and, and get to know those who will hopefully someday be your peers in the industry. Uh, there's also free groups on Facebook and stuff like that. So, But you're only going to you know, learn what's the best route for you by getting your feet out there. You know, you can sit on your, you know, uh, at your desk all day long and say, I'm a writer, I'm a writer. But unless you're really writing, unless you're really putting your stuff out there and networking either virtually or physically, then then you're just kind of twiddling your thumbs. And on that note, regarding advice to aspiring writers, JD, do you have one thing looking back at what you've worked on at your career so far, like one thing you would say to those listening? Uh, piece of advice? The one piece of advice I would give would be to just be original. You know, I mean, it's there is no such thing 
as a perfect publication. There's no such thing as a perfect book, a perfect graphic novel. There's always something we wish we could go back and, and do better. But as long as I think you're, you're trying to come up with an original idea or put an original spin on something, I think you're going to be happier with yourself. I know that I, you know, I, did I sell as many books as, as I wanted to in the first year? No. But, you know, I'm happy with the product I put out, and I'm even more happy with the second book. I've also got a short story that's going to be published soon in a, uh, in a magazine. So I'm just, you know, as long as I keep approaching things from an original vantage point, I'll be happy with what I do. What about you, Stan? Yeah, I would break it down to just one question writers need to ask themselves is, is it a vanity project or is it a profit project? And um, if, if it's a vanity project, you know, just do whatever you want. It's, you have nothing holding you back. You just make what makes you happy. If it's not a vanity project, in my eyes, it's, it's something that's aiming to get an audience. And once you're in that camp, you have a lot of work to do because you have to get a bead on what's hot. You have to get a bead on, is your project easy to communicate to people who are going to either fund it or, or stand behind it? You know, you have less chance to be original. You can put an original twist on something like JD said, but you can't be totally original because no one's going to listen to you. You know, they'll listen to you 20 years later when they found out that you were a genius and you were 20 years ahead of the game, but you're not allowed to be that original. You have to really ingest a lot of sort of visuals and design and again, you know, the landscape, you know, what is the landscape, you know? You have to incorporate that into the visuals that you attach to your writing piece. You know, your writing piece, your pitch, whatever it may be, will be infinitely more valuable and infinitely more ingestible if it has even one promotional art piece attached to it. That will be your most important art piece. That's the one you have to repeatedly show to everybody. It's kind of like, oh, we need fresh content. Uh, No, if you're... Pitching something that's new, you only need one art piece and you only need to keep showing that art piece, refining it until it is as crystal clear in describing what your movie is about. And it it, it doesn't have to be a piece that describes your story to a T. It has to give a feeling. And that, that feeling, you can learn about how to create an art piece or how to art direct as a writer, you, or you're only going to be able to art direct the piece. Or, you know, if you're a writer-artist, that's another thing. But let's just assume you're a writer and predominantly a writer and you want to hire an expert to create a promotional art piece. The way to learn about how to make promotional art pieces is to, you know, again, absorb whatever's around you, Um, especially movie posters. You know, study movie posters. Look at movie posters and ask yourself, what feeling does this give me? And then look at your own for-profit project and think about how can I make a poster that gives me a feeling that I'm trying to convey. And chances are, again, this is not an original idea because you're not allowed to be super, super original, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, these people who are going to fund your project, usually. So it's been done before. So, you know, seek out the movie posters that conveyed that feeling for you in the past, you know, dig them up, you know, dig them up on the internet, find out what they look like and say, and give that to your artist and say, I want it to look like this and this with these colors from, and it could be from five different projects, but that's where you're communicating your idea to the artist to create this awesome promotional piece. That's going to be a big part of making that project happen for you. I'm sorry. I just want to jump in because um, something Stan said is absolutely, absolutely true. I'm glad he said it. 
because um, three of the seven rejections I got, my first round of rejections, were all basically the same thing. We don't know what to do with this. It's a cool story. We like it. Can't market it. So he's right. You have to, you have to play the game a little bit. So I just wanted to say, I, was, I, wanted, I wish I had mentioned that. So thank you, Stan. You said it better than I could. And Matt, I know you had, uh, you've oh, given a couple you. words of wisdom over the course of the episode, but is there one that you want to say? Sure. This is a mandate for all um, aspiring writers, beginning writers. Start small. Don't make your magnum opus right out of the gate because one, it's going to be terrible. So you don't want your big thing to be bad, do you? And two, if you're a beginning writer, no one's going to want to read your magnum opus right away because they're going to look at it and be like, you've never written anything before? Like, what do I have to go on? So start small. Make the small thing as good as it can be. So it can be your calling card. So you get it, give it to someone. They're like, oh, wow, this is good. And it didn't take me too long to read it. Oh, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. So the next time you do come along with the thing that's maybe a little bit bigger, maybe a little more complicated, they're going to be willing to give you more time because time is money. And uh, so start small. And uh, that way you're also going to get it, your first project done. And because if you start big, you might not get it done and then you'll never get anything done. So, well, thank you guys for uh, taking the time, uh, walking us through the process, giving us those words of wisdom for aspiring writers. JD Sanderson, uh, The Clock's Knell, coming out summer 2019. Stan, did you want to plug anything? Yeah, just uh, my new comic book company. You know, I'm, a, I'm happy to be a part of it and I'm learning a lot and I'm happy to continue to share what I learned about, you know, helping to build a comic book company from the ground up. And as an art director, being in every aspect of making a comic um, from a visual and design perspective and uh, yeah, just sharing everything. I think it's all about sharing. It's all about the community of upcoming creators. So I'm, I'm happy to be on this podcast. Thank you for having me on. And I'm happy to continue to keep sharing to help the community. Amazing. And Matt, I know you mentioned that you and Stan are working on a comic, but you don't have a title for it yet. Do you want to plug anything there? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I do want to say that I've got my short story, The Strange Case of Lieutenant York, is coming out very, very soon from uh, Story Arc uh, Press through their Sci-Fi's 2019 anthology. Excited about that one. And uh, yeah, so that'll be coming out soon. And Stan and my comic, we do have a publisher. I probably can't say who it is yet, but it's a uh, awesome up-and-coming publisher that I'm excited to be able to be working with. They'll probably see us on the con circuit um, later this year. And JD, I mentioned the clock's now is coming out summer 2019. You want to shout that out yourself? Anything else you want to plug? Yeah. Uh, um, anyone who wants to interact with me, I'm happy to do so on Twitter at a sci-fi writer, which I still can't believe I got, but I'm happy with that. <laughs> and um, I have an original sci-fi short story. Happy to have that and the next book coming out. And thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. And it is a great Twitter handle, by the way. All right. Thank you. <laughs> it's very memorable. Speaking of Twitter handles, Stan Cho can be found at Artist Stan on Twitter. If I mess this up, tell me. Matt Kelly at Super Matt Kelly. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Did I get those Twitter handles right? Yep. You did indeed. And hey, big fan of the podcast. Thank you for having me on. And Stan and JD. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Same here. Thank you guys for, I know the format was a bit different, but yeah, just appreciate all your insights. Thanks. All right, guys. Well, I will let you continue with your day. Good luck with the writing, continued success. And uh, thank you. And thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. 
The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.